Hey, Carl here to announce a very special project that I've been working on for the last month. And now it's launched. It's called Blazer Train. That's right. It's free Blazer training YouTube videos. It's a complete class. We've got five episodes up there, including an interview with Steve Sanderson and David Fowler. We're going to have new content every week. Go get it, folks. Blazertrain.com. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, I got another story for you, my friend. I, this just happened to me. Oh? I, and I thought it was a RDP thing. I have a developer machine in the sky. Mm, as you do. And I'm um, connected to it. And I was working on it last night. I come back this morning. And like the screen, the code screen keeps scrolling to the right. Hmm. And I have no idea why. And I drag the scroll bar and it scrolls back to the right. I'm like, what the heck is going on here? <laughs> and it's only on your cloud machine, right? Yeah. Well, apparently it was. I pull up Notepad, like everything's fine. Okay. And so, you know, I do the the normal stuff. I restart Visual Studio. Then I restart the, the, the VM and I reconnect and still happening so i'm like mm. all right screw you i'm gonna copy this code down to my local machine and uh, pull it up there everything seems to be going fine and then all of a sudden yep scrolling to the right again huh. i'm like okay there's nothing wrong with my keyboard what and then i look to the left and i've got this little usb hub and i've got this little wireless chip usb thing in there for some keyboard or some mouse i'm like wait a minute i'm that's not my mouse. I pull it out. My mouse still works. Uh, like, and it magically goes, goes this away. Problem goes away. So I probably have some keyboard like on the floor somewhere. Sitting in a box uh, or something a with box. a key press. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Is it actually good that two keyboards will work on the same machine? I've done the two mouse things, but that just make, keeps both hands busy. It's very strange. Yes. Very yeah. odd. But, you know, imagine the practical jokes. I can. <laughs> I, I, re I, I recently pulled a blog post over on the IT side. We were talking about whether rubber duckies, which is that you thing that looks like a USB key, but it actually emulates a keyboard and you can preload it with scripts. Yeah. Typically used for hacking, you know, Paula Jenny Whiskey, don't ever let her near your, your computer. She doesn't right. need a keyboard, just your USB port. She's gotcha. Um, yeah. But actually, the guy was showing how he's using Rubber Ducky as a rapid install tool. So, if you mm. want to reconfigure a machine, you can set up the Rubber Ducky that way. You just like click, types all the keystrokes for the reconfigure, you know, done, click, pull it back out, off you go. Yeah. It's cool. It's gadget. All right. Well, let's roll the crazy music because I've got something a little scary today. All right. <laughs> man what do you got uh pulse pulse this is a thing on github it's a python thing self-supervised photo upsampling via latent space exploration of generative models what basically <laughs> they can take uh down sampled or downscaled pixelated images right and restore them oh uh, that's scary yeah so, check out what it says here if you go to the link. We have noticed a lot of concern that Pulse will be used to identify individuals whose faces have been blurred out 
We want to emphasize that this is impossible. Pulse makes imaginary faces of people who do not exist, which should not be confused for real people. <laughs> it will not help identify or reconstruct the original image. Right. Because that's, that is just movie magic. Yeah. 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 So, uh, the cool thing is there's a, there's a GIF. You know, if you scroll down, it says, what does it do? Given a low resolution input image, Pulse searches the outputs of a generative model here, StyleGAN, for high resolution images that are perceptually realistic and downscale correctly. Hmm. Yeah. So, and, and, uh, if you click on that, you will see sort of a, an animated GIF of how you get from an input image to, to what it, what it creates. Wow. That's really interesting, isn't it? It's, it's a little scary, kind of creepy, but very cool. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 again, it looks like movie stuff, but it's just not actually movie stuff. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, that's what I got. Who's talking to us today? Grab a comment off a show 1538. Yep. That's the Wayback Machine, April of 2018. We talked Jeez. to one Steve Smith about clean architecture. I was doing, he was working on an ebook around this clean architecture concept. We had a great conversation. It was yep. good stuff. I'm sure you remember. It was only two years ago. Uh, and uh, Nathan Vivo, who's been a regular listener for a long time and I think has uh, may already have used a code by, but it's all right. We'll, we'll figure something out for him. Mm -hmm. He said, I must be in the minority, but I have mixed feelings about these kinds of project organizations. Hmm. Over the years, I've ended up preferring simpler solutions with everything in the same place unless it's absolutely necessary to split it. And we were talking about clean architecture and, you know, separation of concerns and, and, and so forth. Yeah. Uh, Nathan goes on to say, at some point in my career, I stopped worrying about that. Currently, I mix business logic and data access directly to controllers with no fear. And now it's not that I don't organize things. There are places where I prefer to split things if they are shared, if they're too complicated to require more thorough testing and so on. But those are exceptions and I split when needed. Nowadays, with a microservices mindset and good messaging and lots of refactoring tools, it's too simple to break things apart when needed. And when that happens, that complex part becomes an entire system dedicated to a specific task and then becomes simple again, even if occasionally you need to mix SQL and business together. Mm -hmm. The fact is that I got free of this idea that each line must have a very specific project or file to be written. I've been much happier. The projects got much simpler and safer to work with. Now... A couple of things about this. One is Nathan's clearly an experienced developer, and so he's now making these decisions very coherently because he's not, right. not afraid to be wrong and is prepared to refactor when he is. Yeah. When he sees that complexity there, right? That, that's sort of confidence in code as opposed to the sort of dogmatic approach of we're going to lay out the right architecture front. Right. I mean, one one could even tackle this from the agile Yagni perspective. The ain't, <laughs> you ain't going to need it. You ain't going like, to need it. Yeah. Well, that, but that also presumes that you will refactor, that you will see the emergent architecture and say, let's go apply a better architecture to that because it's now important. Right. Um, and I thought what, what Steve was talking about in his show, and of course, we'll let Steve speak to this too, was very much uh, that prescriptive, hey, when you've got a scope of an application to a certain scale, here are architectures that are reliable, you know, that'll be able to, co to cope with that. Uh, but I also, you know, depends on the project you're working on as to whether that's necessary. So, Nathan, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code By, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on the Facebooks because we put up, publish every show up there. And if you comment there and I read it in the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code By. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. 
I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet, low res. We can reconstruct it. <laughs> we can reconstruct it. Yeah. <laughs> a low res, a low res, wait a minute. Preferably a pixelated tweet. Hmm. Yeah. What does that even look like? I don't even know. <laughs> hey, uh, Steve Smith is back, of course, as you uh, made an allusion to. And I just want to read his current bio. He's an entrepreneur and software developer with a passion for building quality software as effectively as possible. Steve has published several courses on Pluralsight covering DDD, solid design patterns, and software architecture. He's a Microsoft MVP, a frequent speaker at developer conferences, an author, and a trainer. You can follow Steve online at rdallas.com or at rdallas on Twitter. Welcome back. Thanks, Carl. Yeah. Speaking of being a regular, I think this is number 10 for you, friend, not counting the half a dozen different panels you've done, more Mm -hmm. or more. I think you're Mm -hmm. a regular... Like, oh, Steve's here. We need him on XYZ panel. Like, he, you're, you're one of those reliable types where you can contribute to a broader conversation. Well, I appreciate it. It's always fun to be on the show. It's been a couple of years, though. Like, uh, I think you just were uh, quoting from the last time yeah. I was there, and it was over yeah, two was. years ago. So, when I read the uh, the title of today's show, which Richard has, you know, put in, in our database here, ASP.NET Core API Endpoints, I thought, well... Those have been around a while. I mean, what is what else is there to learn about ASP.NET Core API endpoints? And Steve must have some sort of angle on this that nobody's really expecting. So, lay it on us, man. I do have an angle. And, and let me set it up briefly. All right. So, I've been doing ASP.NET since before it was called ASP.NET. Right. Uh, so, it's, it's been a while. ASP+. Right? Plus. And that's right. Yeah. The, uh, the original, yep. right? Um, and, and I've worked with the MVC pattern since it's been a part of ASP.NET, since, you know, Phil Hack introduced, you know, 1.0 over 10 years ago. Uh, and the default structure that that has typically when you say file new project is you've got a controllers folder and you've got a views folder. And recently, you know, even like four or five years ago, um, a lot of folks have been moving toward feature folders. Mm. And one of the driving reasons for that is that when you're working on a particular requirement or feature in an application, you don't want to have to be jumping all over the place in your file system trying to find all the pieces you need to build it. Mm. And with the default MVC organization, that's what happens, right? You've got to, you know, I'm going to add a new page to the to the site and it's you know part of the store and so what do i need to do well i need to go into the controllers folder and find the store controller and add an action method there and then it's going to need some models so i'm going to go into the view models folder and i'm going to add some stored view model thing there and then well i need a view to display it so i'll scroll way down to the views folder because it's you know at the end of the alphabet and i'll look in there for a store folder and then i'll create whatever action name view thing i need uh, and the whole time you're, you're iterating on this, you've got all those things open at once. Your, your solution explorer is not helping you at all. Everything's just everywhere. Right. So then a few, few years ago, uh, ASP.NET Core 2.0 release, they, they released this new thing called Razor Pages. And it got you know a mixed review from the community. But I think it really got a bad rap because too many people associated it with web forms because it had this code behind right. thing. Right. But it's basically the exact same architecture as MVC controllers. It's just as testable. It's just as separation of concerns and everything else. But it uses a convention for routing and it puts the model 
and the view and what is essentially the action, in this case, to use an event uh, terminology, all in the same place. And so it's not all in one file, but they've, they link the files together so that the view, the, the dot, you know, a CSHTML file um, is, is linked to its code behind with, you know, in Visual Studio, a little plus icon that you can expand, right. right? And so when you're working on adding that new page to that store, you don't have to go and touch four different files in, in four different folders. You just open up that page and it's associated file that's right there with it. And there's no scrolling, right? Everything's right there mm-hmm. in the right place. Um, and so that's great, but we don't have that for APIs, right? Now you go and you say, okay, well, you know, who, who does, who builds views anymore, right? Most things that we're building that are actual applications, a lot of the work has moved to the client it's being done in angular or react, or, or maybe it's going to be blazer, but they're going to talk to APIs and the APIs are still controller based and they are going to have a bunch of models that they send back and forth. And those are going to be in some other folder. Uh, and you end up in kind of the same situation. Uh, and so what I wanted to do is apply the same type of logic to API controllers mm-hmm. that Razor Pages already did for view-based right. controllers. And that's what this API Endpoints NuGet package does. Oh, okay. So, you know, people may not know this, but um, well, most of us do if we've been using it for a while. But, you know, when you make folders in Visual Studio, that that is nothing but... Uh, a place where you to for you to put something controllers don't have to go into a controllers folder right pages the, your right. razor pages don't have to go in a pages folder like you you can put files wherever you want and organize them however you want and it's just sort of like a, a a plop forehead slap moment that you know of course why wouldn't i organize these things by you know com- put all of the things together that work together in one place Giant folder yeah, of doom. <laughs> <laughs> there, there are a couple things where the framework expects things to be in a certain place. So the Razor Pages by default is going to expect things to be in the Pages oh, folder, okay. and Views by default are going to expect them to be in the Views folder. But controllers can be anywhere, and your models can yeah. be anywhere. And you can, you can, with a couple lines of code, you can tell the framework to look somewhere else. Right. And so a lot of the feature folder implementations, that's right. what they do is they say, hey, when you're looking for this view, actually go look for it over here in this okay. feature folder. Yeah. So I'm thinking of Blazor. You, you know, it doesn't matter if you put things in the, uh, in a pages folder or a shared folder or whatever, you know, the Blazor's going to find them. Yeah. Nice. But anyway, continue. You have a NuGet package. Okay. I have a NuGet package. It's called API Endpoints. I'm sure there'll be a link to it in the show notes. And... In this NuGet package, I essentially offer a base class that is uh, an API mm-hmm. endpoint base. And it doesn't let you just have an arbitrary number of actions, whatever you want to throw on there, like a controller would. Um, it is designed to be a one-to-one mapping between this class, which has endpoint right in its name, and an actual endpoint of your API. And so it has a single method called handle or handle async. And it returns back some generic type and it accepts in a generic type. Uh, so it's basically a request and mm. response. And so you've got, you know, basically request, endpoint, response. And so if we had to come up with a fancy acronym, it'd be like R-E-P-R. It'd be like Reaper, mm. right? Or Reaper, <laughs> however you want to say it. Um, and, and so instead of MVC, which, which leaves out the action part, right? You have to have an action for this controller to do anything. Um, we would have this Reaper pattern instead and you, you end up with a much thinner 
uh, set of classes, right? They follow the solid principles, in particular, single responsibility principle, open closed mm-hmm. principle. Because when you come back into your system and you want to add another endpoint, you just add another endpoint class. You don't have to do surgery on an existing controller. You don't have to modify its constructor and potentially break things and break existing code. You just add one more yeah. class, right? That's following the open closed principle because you're not having to touch existing code in order to, to enhance what your system is doing. Right, right. Makes it much easier. When you, yeah. So when you create one of these, it, it is a generic base class, right? And so you just tell it when you inherit from it that I'm going to use, you know, this, this base API endpoint. Um, let me pull up the sample here. There's a sample in the GitHub repo uh, and it kind of shows you how everything works. And if you look at the, an endpoint um, to, for example, to create an author, uh, it has a base async endpoint type that it inherits from. And it takes in as its generic type, uh, a create author command and a create author result. Uh, and so your your class definition for your endpoint is public class create colon basic async endpoint of create author command comma create author result. Uh, and then in this, there is basically a constructor where you pass in whatever dependencies, like a repository or a mapper or a logger, whatever you might need. Uh, and then it has a single method that is overridden. Um, and this is a public override async task of action result of create author mm-hmm. result sorry it's a lot of generics but basically it's 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 an async method that's going to return back an action result of t where t is whatever you told it in in the class definition yeah. right uh and then it has the method name is called handle async um in this case since it's a post it has a from body uh attribute on the, the thing coming in and that thing coming in is of type create author command um because that's the thing we said in that base declaration. Uh, and so that's the one method you implement. Now, this will sound very familiar to anyone that has discovered Mediator and the benefits of using Mediator to clean up your controllers because a whole lot of developers already write code like this, but they put the logic that they need to write inside of a, a handler and they use Mediator to send a message from the controller action to the handler. And I've done that too, and that works great. It does the job of cleaning up your controllers and making them uh, a lot smaller and, and and simpler. What this does is it eliminates the need for mediator. Okay. Nice. Yeah. Always thinking, you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, what about testability here? Does this give me any, make it easier for me to build a test harness around each of these endpoints? It's pretty much the same. Um, when you're writing tests against uh, API endpoints in, in ASP.NET Core, you're probably writing uh, functional tests, or, or you may call them integration mm-hmm. tests, but they're using the uh, the built-in support for uh, the test server. Um, if, if you look at this repo, the sample has a bunch of tests with it, right? And so they use the custom web application factory, and they give you a, a HTTP client that you can use, and then you can basically hit these endpoints with with whatever type of uh, request you want, and then see that you get back the response you expect. Um, the reason why there's not a big difference between them is because the the existing architecture of just using controllers with you know 52 action methods on them, um, those those action methods they're not cohesive at all. They don't talk to one another. They're totally independent of one another. They just happen to be on that controller class because that's the convention, and because it makes it so maybe you can do routing conventions a little a little bit more consistently or easily. Um, but but any given endpoint doesn't care about the other endpoints, and so they're they're only grouped together in that controller class sort of arbitrarily. Uh, and so when you're testing, you're only testing one endpoint, and so there's no real difference. Cool. One thing that is nice is that a lot of times controllers, as they get bigger, 
different action methods will need different dependencies. And so you'll, you'll notice on a, on a larger legacy system that the API controllers, their constructors, have more and more and more classes being injected into them. And then if you look at any individual action method in there, you'll see it's only using a handful of them. Um, and, and so this has the effect of making it so that each endpoint only requests the dependencies it actually needs, uh, which, which makes them a little bit easier to test um, sometimes because you don't have to set up as many dependencies. It makes it easier to kind of at a glance see what is being used, what's not being used. Um, and in general, it's just it's kind of a code smell. If you notice your constructor has more and more and more uh, arguments coming into it, that probably you're not following the single responsibility principle. Probably you're doing too much. So if you can keep that constructor down to like, you know, under five or so uh, dependencies coming in, um, you know, fewer is even better. Uh, that That's a lot easier to do when you've just got a single endpoint per class instead of, you know, 10 or more endpoints on a given controller. Well, you can always build the do everything endpoint with, uh, <laughs> you know, with an XML parameter. So you just feed it whatever you, heck you want. That won't have any problems. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually just had a client last month that had gone down no. that path and, and he'd already discovered that it wasn't the, the, the place he wanted yeah. to be. But we had a great conversation talking about it. Um, because yeah, that once once he built it, the uh, the client was great. The contract with the API was great. You never had to change any of that. But oh, there was so much uh, testing that had to happen for every single thing that he might mm-hmm. do. So um, he ended up ripping it all out because it just wasn't worth the the trouble. But um, he learned from it, which, right? Which he's not de- probably the he's right. not defending it. He's you know not blaming Microsoft for it. It's like we made a mistake and we see the consequences of it. Yeah. And they even tried to do the right yep. thing, yep. like they were trying to wrap it in in protective layers to, to keep it working. Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, it was he he got experience from it of like, well, this is why we we split it up. This is the benefit, like, and it's not just cargo call programming at yeah. that point. Like, he actually knows what what the alternative is, and and there are scenarios where it does make sense to to offer that, right? I mean, that's basically uh, what GraphQL mm-hmm. is, right? Like, hey, I'll just send you whatever the heck uh, I I want you to give me, and then you figure out how to do it and send right. it back. Like, you know, who needs all these separate endpoints? <laughs> you just have one endpoint that does it all. We call it GraphQL. Well, and, 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 you know, it's funny because you talk about stepping in, in harness nets. There are folks that really don't like GraphQL for that. Oh, I'm sure. Um, and, and it's probably a, a whole separate show we could do. But I did a, a blog post recently comparing GraphQL to the whole store procedure versus ORM oh, yeah. battle that took place, you know, a, a little over a decade sure. ago. Because it's basically the same thing, right? It used to be the, the DBAs would be the gatekeepers of the data. And in many organizations, the developers weren't allowed to directly access it. Someone had to write a store procedure that the developers would call, and that was how you got your data. And so a lot of times developers would be frustrated because they'd be waiting on the, the DBA to, to do the store procedure they needed. Right, right. And now front-end developers are feeling the same way. Like, I just need the data. Why do I have to wait for the back-end developer to write me that API yeah. endpoint I need? I just need one endpoint. I'll tell it whatever the heck I want, and it'll give me all the data. It's a great comparison, right? That it, it, we're we're just going down this path of who's my blocker to the next deliverable. Like, what what, what does right. that look and, like on the board? And, it's like, how do I eliminate that? Right. Whatever the front end is, it just wants whatever it needs to be able to like show stuff to the user and, and accept an input. Like, they don't they don't really care about how the data gets to and from wherever it, it goes, as long as they have an easy way to to do it. It doesn't slow them down doing their job. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think in the long term, GraphQL is going to win. If, if not GraphQL, but then something like it, right? Because ORMs won, right? I mean, you you still there is value still in store procedures in some scenarios, yes. but by and large, ORMs are good enough for basic crud of basic business objects, right? 
Well, it's it's a Pareto's law thing, right? Like 80% of the time, the ORM does a fine job and it's efficient. You know, yeah. you get that 80% case and 20% of the time, at least within any framework, you the DBA does build a store procedure and you call it through EF. You know, there's a workaround right. for that. And that's the whole thing. It's like, I don't like an all or nothing solution one way or the other. Uh, give me the alternative when we find an exception case. And that's just with SQL yep. Server too. I mean, using mm-hmm. any framework with other stores, document databases, for example. You know. Oh, heavens, yes. Like, who wants to query XML with XPath anymore? Like, save me. Yeah. But <laughs> but it, but I'm thinking of this from the same perspective of GraphQL, that in the 80% case, the bulk of the time, this will do a fine job. And when there's an exception... You know, then you can't, you use an alternative method and it's okay. It's not a big deal. The the real thing here is the dogma of we're only going to do things one way. Right. Right. And speaking of that, let me, let me use that as a segue back into the MVC APIs. Mm-hmm. Another thing that often happens with the traditional way that we build APIs and, and controllers is that you'll have a view models folder or an API models folder. And it'll have the view models or, or whatever you want to call them, API models that the API uses. And they aren't necessarily a perfect fit for every endpoint. But as developers, we don't necessarily want to create a whole lot of them because they're all in one folder and it just gets to be cumbersome, right? Like you don't want to have to add five or six different uh, API models when you've already got one, it's kind of close and maybe it, you know, it has a few fields you don't need or whatever. So you'll just use that one, right? It kind of promotes developers reusing stuff they really shouldn't be reusing. And so the other thing that these endpoints support is that you can just put your request and your response types right in the class, and and they're they're not even separate files necessarily. They could literally be you know inner classes um, on the the endpoint itself, uh, and so that makes it so it's very easy for you as a developer to reason about exactly what you want coming in over the wire for your API yeah. endpoint, uh, both for the request and for the response. Yeah, fair. Yeah, nice. And I, and I see you here pretty clear. So, can I have more than one routable method to endpoint class? And you're like, mm, yeah, but don't do that. <laughs> yeah, if you actually look at the code for API mm-hmm. endpoints, um, not not the sample. It, there's not much to it, right? There's basically two classes, and and they they both inherit at the end of the day from controller base, right? So so any question that you would ask about, hey, does this do? Does this support this feature? Does it work with filters? Does it do routing correctly? Whatever, like. If it works with controllers, it'll work with yeah. these endpoints. Mm-hmm. Right? They're, they're just a special uh, subclass of controller base. Yeah. yeah. I appreciate there's no voodoo here, but it is just you you found a place where a little more abstraction helps us to make some little cleaner, terser code. Yeah. Right. And, and an argument I often hear in response to this is, well, why do we need this? We could just write controllers with one Said, method now. I'm like, well, yeah, you could, but are you? Said the guy who never developed an application with, you know, <laughs> 7,000 projects. <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, pages and yeah, pages like, and pages of controller. And now it's all about naming strategies. Because let me tell you, man, that slowed me down big time on a big project that I was working on last year. Uh, just, just, what, what did just exactly? trying, you know, navigate where is that file? What folder? And now I've got, you know, umpteen projects. So like there was like 25 projects in this solution. Oh, man. And, you know, each one of those controllers folders had so many files it was very hard to just jump around and navigate when you're trying to do one thing and so this Mm. this is the solution to that everything for this particular feature is in this one folder Mm -hmm. yep now this will result 
to just to play devil's advocate for a second on what you were just saying, this will result in more yep. files mm-hmm. yep. probably than what you had before, but they should be better organized and they should be all together. Yeah. And, and if, and again, if you want to, you can actually put the models right in the endpoint itself so that you don't even have to have separate files for those. Interesting. But if you do, if you do make separate files, I can't really show it to you through the GitHub interface, but in visual studio, if you follow the convention that I use in the sample, they're actually chained together with that endpoint type. So when you when you open it up in Solution Explorer, you hit the little plus icon, you'll see here's the create author request, here's the create author response chained right off of the endpoint itself. Right, so they're sorting themselves. You don't end up with a spray like that. Correct. Have, yep. have we talked about um, when uh, the features are spread across multiple projects? Wait, wait, wait. Let me, let me do the break because that's okay. a good segue. All right. Okay. And Steve, I'm going to interrupt for one moment for this very important message. Hey, it's Carl and Richard here to tell you that all of the NDC conferences this year are going online. You can still attend the workshops and sessions, but from the comfort of your own home. Here's what's coming up. NDC Oslo is June 8th to 12th. So go to ndcoslo.com to register. NDC Minnesota will be September 8th through the 11th. Go to ndcminnesota.com to register. NDC Sydney is October 12 to 16. Early bird discount for NDC Sydney ends July 12th. So go to ndcsydney.com to register. Check out the full lineup of conferences at ndcconferences.com. And we're back. It's .NET Rocks. I'm Richard Campbell. That's Carl Franklin. Yo. And we're chatting with our friend Steve Smith about his uh, endpoints project for ASP.NET Core and trying to keep things a little more organized for us all. Yeah. So, Steve, what happens when your features might be spread across multiple projects? You know, like I'm thinking like you have a core project and you have a repo project and you've got a, you know, a whatever project. Can that pose a problem or do you just link to the different files as sort of uh, – Oh, yeah, linked. It, it sounds like you're you're talking about different projects for different parts of yeah. the application, but like you'd still only have one front end, one web project. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so these these endpoints basically are just a web thing. So they would only live in in the in the MVC uh, ASP.NET Core project. The other projects would hold. You know, if, if we go back to my clean architecture show we talked about there, um, I typically have a core project that has all my domain mm-hmm. logic and my business logic, uh, and then like an infrastructure project that has all the things that talk to stuff outside right. of my code, so databases, email, what have you. And, and this works fine with that, right? It'll it'll use interfaces. Those interfaces are probably defined mm-hmm. in core, and then the implementation of those interfaces, like a, an entity framework repository, you know, maybe that's defined in the infrastructure mm-hmm. project. And and those things all work perfectly well. With, with this approach. Uh, my, my clean architecture template that I have on GitHub, if you go to GitHub slash rdallas slash clean architecture, um, you can use that as a solution template. And it has an example of using API endpoints in there now, um, side by side with regular controllers. So you can pick and choose nice. which one you'd like. Nice. I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of a, a situation that would throw you for a loop, but I, I really can't think of one. Are there any gotchas that, uh, you know, required behaviors or conventions that you have to uh, observe in order for this to all work together? Um, there's a few open issues. Uh, one of them is, is I'd like to have an analyzer that makes sure that your endpoints only have one public method. Uh, because right now you could create an endpoint. And since it does just inherit from base controller, 
you could add a bunch of stuff on it, right? You could add a bunch of action methods to it and it'll, it'll, it'll be routable. Um, it'll work just like as if it were a controller. You shouldn't do that because that's not the abstraction we're trying to use, but there's nothing in the compiler that will stop you. Um, so it'd be nice if, if there were an analyzer that would prevent Mm. that from happening. Um, you know, a couple little things like that, uh, that, that one could, could add would, would make these a little bit better. I'd love to see these or something like them occur in the framework itself, just like we currently have two ways of doing view-based things with you know traditional MVC views or razor pages. I would love to see traditional MVC-based APIs or these API endpoints as something out of the box. But um, so far, I haven't gotten a great reception from from the actual Microsoft product team on that. Uh, I think at least in part because they they took a lot of flack from from razor pages, uh, and and they aren't looking to to see that that experience yeah. again. So, um, but we'll see. I'll, I'll keep uh, pushing it. And, and generally I get a positive response from this. It's either people think, yeah, I like that. Or they think I don't need that. Cause I'm already doing it with mediator or I don't need that. Cause I'll just, you know, make my controller smaller myself. Right. And I don't think that that last case fully appreciates the benefit of constraints. Like, you know, we, we don't have to have strong typing. We don't have to have public and private, you know, visibility modifiers on our classes. Those do constrain us. And I don't think they, they cause us to write worse code. I think they cause us to write better mm-hmm. code by virtue mm-hmm. of those constraints. And that's what these endpoints are doing. They're a constraint that says, hey, don't put a whole lot of stuff in the whole kitchen sink on one controller. Do each endpoint as its own class. And, and yeah, you could still do it the other way, but we're going to use this constraint to force us to write better software. Yeah. Yeah. Which is what constraints generally do. Yep. Good, good constraints anyway. Because I mean, when you talk mediator, you're just talking about a pattern of behavior, right? There's no tooling for mediator. Um, well, there's, there's a couple of common uh, NuGet packages yeah. you can use. The most, most popular one, I think is Jimmy Bogard's mediator yeah. uh, library. And, and yeah, it, there's no tooling built into Visual Studio or anything like that. That's going to do it for you. But, but if you follow the mediator approach, um, and I've got a nice blog post that kind of walks through going from a, a, a regular controller and then using mediator to clean it up. And then ultimately you can get rid of mediator and just use API endpoints. But when you, when you take that path, if you look at a particular action method on a controller, right, it, it has some model binding at, uh, parameters that come in, arguments. Um, and then inside it, it does whatever it does. It does some work. Right, maybe it maybe it uses a repository to to fetch an entity, and then it calls a method on that entity, and then it, maybe it uses the repository again to save it. Um, instead of doing all that work in the controller, what you would do with Mediator is you would have a command that you would create, uh, which is just a DTO, and then you would say Mediator send this command, and and maybe it's fire and forget, or maybe you get back some response. Mm-hmm. Right, either way, um, you you can assign it to a result. And then you just return, right? Your API is done. You just return okay or return okay and, and with the result. Now, what Mediator is doing is uh, at runtime, that send command is going to go find any handlers, and there could be more than one, um, that are registered for that particular command type, and they'll mm-hmm. get executed right right at that moment uh, asynchronously. But, but you know, before that... Uh, that action method returns, it's going to await on this, this, uh, this other method to complete or several methods to complete. Um, and then, and then it'll return. So it's, it's a good way to split up your code and have uh, a little bit more loose coupling between what's happening in the controller and what's happening, the actual logic that's occurring. Um, and, it, and it'll, the nice thing about it is if you follow that pattern, you can actually make it so all your controllers have no dependencies except mm-hmm. mediator. 
So your constructor problem goes away. Uh, and then every single action is basically just create this, this command mediator.send. Hmm. That's it. Right. It's like two lines nice. for every action method. Um, but then it, you know, it just, at the end of the day, that begs to me, that begs the question of, okay, well, why do I still have the controller at that mm-hmm. point? Right. It's not doing anything. I could just code gen the whole stupid thing. Cause every single action method looks the same. <laughs> um, and that's, and that's what endpoints do is they just, they get rid of the need for that intermediary. Well, this is, you know, you start off in this motivations for, for your API endpoints with MVC controls are essentially an anti-pattern. <laughs> How dare you, sir? Yeah. They're, 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 they're dinosaurs, right? They, they don't, they don't scale well yeah. over time. That's yeah. the big problem, right? They, you know, when you say file new project and you had a controller and it's got two actions in it, I was like, okay, yeah, it looks fine. Um, but you, you work on that for a couple of years and they more often than not lead you down a bad path. Right. And that's why so many people use mediator uh, and use other patterns to, to alleviate that. Just because of versioning issues and things. Um, and I think if you just, yeah, I think, I mean, versioning is its own separate yeah. can of worms um, and endpoints doesn't magically no. solve that problem. Um, but it, but it is yet another concern to have over time. Yes. Well, and, and to your point, right? Like when you think when MVC came along in what, 2006, 2007, then we had MVVM. And uh, what, well, you know, now mm. I'm reading about model view presenter and like something, you know, they, it was the controller that was the problem. Right? Nobody has a problem with a model and a view. We all get that. But then what seems to be the battle? Yeah, and it's like, well, where where does the entry point to the mm-hmm. application occur? What's the first thing that runs and then knows about the other things? Um, and and my only problem with controllers is that the the actions on a controller are unrelated right. to one another. How many times have you ever had two action methods on a controller that called each other <laughs> yeah. or that knew about each other in any way? Like they're totally yeah. unrelated. So that's that's where they they tend to violate single responsibility principle. And for the most part, developers look the other way on that because it's a pattern that everybody yeah. uses. Um, and, and this is just like, no, let's, let's actually be serious about making the code follow those principles. And, and we're not giving anything up by doing so, except maybe that you have a few more classes. Yeah. Or you, you know, I, I just read on the, they, you know, MVC actually stands for massive view controller. <laughs> That's what <laughs> tends to emerge, right? As you try and cram all this stuff together. That's right. The uh, people seem happier with model v- MVVM for a long time. I mean, that was the silver light pattern for better or worse. Sure. Sure. And WPF. Yeah. And WPF. Yeah. And, in, and in there, the view model has a lot of logic in it. Mm-hmm. Um, the interesting thing about MVC is that MVC often has a view model, <laughs> right? Like it's really MVVMC, right? Like there's, <laughs> it's got a view model and a view and a controller and a model. Uh, and, and if you're a new developer coming into these patterns, you're like, well, what's the model? Well, I've got a view model. I've got an API model. I've got this model binding. I've got the, the data model. I've got the domain model. Like there's not just one yeah. model, right? That M on MVC is standing in for like a whole lot of mm-hmm, stuff. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that, that's the old line, right? Every code has ugliness in it. You just need to know where is it? And it's apparently it's in the undefined model, although maybe you're just blaming the controller for all of that. Yeah. And I mean, the, the controller is, is the only, the only real problem I have with controllers that it it tends to have too much responsibility because it is the entry point for too many different things that aren't related to one another. Right. That, that's the root of the, of my issue with it. And that's the root of where I see the problem occurring in, in many of the organizations that I, I go and help out. Right. They just, they've gone a funny direction with it and it, and it creates problems. They've, yeah. I mean, they've, they've gone the default right. direction with it. Right. That's it. It creates problems. <laughs> the way it's expected yeah. to be used creates problems. It's, it just doesn't yeah. scale. 
And really, is that the issue? It's just that we're making bigger and bigger apps. And we have been for a long time. And so you inevitably end up with this controller proliferation. Yes. Yeah. And, and it doesn't help that out of the box, the default approach has always been the controllers folder and a views folder, right? And they're not at all organized by yeah. feature. And so, you know, I, I'm certainly not the first one to come up with the idea of feature folders. Like that's been an idea that's been around for at least mm-hmm. a decade and it does help. Um, but even with that, a lot of the time you still end up with way too much stuff inside of a controller. Even if you say, hey, I've got this one feature and it's the product catalog feature and it's uh, the product catalog controller goes into that folder along with all of its models and views and everything else it might have. That thing is still huge, right? Because the product catalog has like 12 different endpoints on it that all do different things, not to mention helper methods and other stuff. Um, and so that controller might still be, you know, 500 or 1,000 lines of code yeah. long. Um and so feature feature folders help you get part of the way there, but I think uh, splitting it down by endpoint gets you, you know, as far as you're going to get as as far as logically thinking about the application. Yeah. And and the product team I think is headed in this direction, right? They're they're taking more and more stuff out of MVC, specifically like the MVC package, mm-hmm. and moving it up into ASP.NET middleware where you can use it individually. And eventually, I think we'll be able to just create. And you can do it now just to be a lot more work. But I think out of the box with tooling, I think we'll be able to create individual endpoints very easily uh, in mm-hmm. ASP.NET Core. Maybe that'll be something that comes, you know, post. Does .NET gRPC doing things in gRPC services give us anything? Uh, take away any of this uh, sort of ancient cruft? Um, I don't know that it changes the game too much. It's just the protocol right. that you're using. You still um, have to make services and I've only that used are grouped briefly. somehow. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you could choose whether you, you wanted to structure your gRPC, you know, protobuf contracts to, to be grouped together into large mm. grain services or, or fine-grained, you know, per endpoint, as it were, services. Um, it, it, that already doesn't use MVC, so it's, it's, a, yep. it's a separate yep. thing. And, I, and I'm not an expert in it enough to, to really speak too intelligently about it, but I don't, I don't think it has this problem by default. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it would be up to developers whether or not they, they tried to go down this path with it. Um, and it's still yep, pretty new yep, for yep. most .NET developers, at least. Maybe we just needed better search. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> Gmail yeah. never fixed the inbox problem, the mail problem. What they had was good search. So you, you still had a pile of goo, right. but you could go pull out the stuff out of your goo that you want to. Searching for stuff in Studio sucks. Like, it's just too hard to find anything. Um, a lot of people don't know this, but there is a really nice uh, shortcut mm-hmm. that you can use in Visual Studio. And um, if you just do Control-T, it will let you find all kinds of stuff based on uh, whether it's a type or whether it's a method name or whatever. So, you know, Control-T is like your search for anything. Right. And if you hit question mark... Uh, it'll show you the different things that will let you search for. I'm doing it right now, so I just make sure mm. I get this right. Um, but you can search for a line number. You can search for files or members or types or recent files. Um, and then the other thing I use a lot when I use that is I don't want to type out the whole name right. or something. I might have a, a really lengthy name. Like I'm looking at some code right now, and it's got paginated items view model. <laughs> like that's that's a lot of characters. But But it's... You know, it's it's title case, right? There's a capital P I V M. So if I just do a search, I do Control T, and I type in capital P I V M, which I'll do right now, um, it brings yeah. it right up, right? It it knows to search for those types based on those capital yeah. letters, um, and so it's super fast to navigate around if you know Control yeah. T and also 
only search for the first, you know, capital letters in the thing you're looking you for. Need to, you need to have the glossary of your of your app. Like, you use decent names that you can go find the things you're looking for. Yeah. Awesome tip. Yeah. And, and the tooling has the right t- – I think Visual Studio the right now um, – is, is, is really good. I mean, it's. I used to use some add-ins with it to make it mm-hmm. even better, and I, for the most part, I don't even use um, extensions with it wow. at this point. Uh, but, or if I do, it's like some of the, the free um, Roslyn, like Roslinator is a nice extension that I sometimes install. Um, or if I'm doing uh, static analysis, I might install Endepend, but that's like separate from what Visual Studio's job is, right? Um, a lot of the productivity tools that are out there I, I haven't used in, in a few years now just because Visual Studio has gotten good enough where it has the the default productivity and refactoring tools that I yeah. that I use the most. Right. So when you're doing your Blazor stuff, Carl, and you're doing Blazor on the client, it's talking to an API. Mm. Would you use these for that? Yeah, I, I mean, I suppose I could. I really haven't done anything so big that it had you know so many controllers that I couldn't find stuff. But I suppose I mm-hmm. could, you know, if I was going to have a project that big, yeah. I guess that's an interesting point. Is is this something I have to decide up front or when I'm starting to struggle to find stuff in my project, can I bring endpoints in and it's relatively easy to clean the mess up? Yeah, it's it's something you could certainly add later. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not so much about having a lot of controllers. It's more about having a lot of stuff on right, a controller. Right. So when you open up a controller and your, and your scroll bar is, you know, microscopic because it's <laughs> yeah. so long. That's telling you, you know, I'm probably doing too much inside this class. Maybe I can yeah. split it up well, somehow. And, and endpoints offer a good way. And to it's do also that. a bunch of stuff that you're not looking for, right? That's the biggest thing is I pop this open to find the thing I am looking for, and I got to wade through several hundred of the things I'm not looking mm-hmm. for. Right. The signal to noise ratio gets worse and worse. Yeah. If it yeah. was all relevant, I wouldn't care, but it's mostly irrelevant. Right. And, and when you're using these endpoints, there's no scrolling. Like when you want to see the post endpoint for your API to see what it was it actually doing when someone posts a new record, you open up the, the you know, the create whatever endpoint. And the code is all right there. You yep. don't even have to scroll. Nice. Right? I mean, unless you're using some ginormous font size or you have a really old <laughs> monitor, right? You're, you're going to be able to see all the code right there. In, in, or in you the, need a new page. eyeglasses. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Uh, more screen good. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I added Roslinator to the show notes, and I hadn't see, looked at this thing in ages. 500-plus analyzers powered by Roslin. This is crazy. Wow. This thing's got, this might be a whole show all by itself. Look at this thing. Oh, it's nice. And it's free. Yeah, well, you know, welcome to open source land. And it is an extension yeah. for studio. Like, it, you know, it, it, admittedly, it's an open source mm-hmm. project, but it is an extension for studio as well. Hmm. Yeah, it's, this is all about addressing these kinds of problems of managing big projects. Yeah. Like so many, so, so much of our trouble as we build up these more bigger apps, it's just like, how do you even navigate in this thing? Yep. How do you function in it? Right. Yeah. Just trying to deal with the complexity so that you can continue to add value. Because uh, it gets harder and harder the bigger the system gets to to be able to change it I'm without you, man, breaking. Yeah, isn't that the classic pattern, right? It's like this app's gotten too big to to, to live, essentially. Now, it, now it's trapped. I'm going to be using Control-T every hour of every day, man. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Control T is great, but it's also the indexing effect that Control T has. That it's it will pull out the names that are there. Yeah. So right away, it's like you you want to know what the glossary of this app is. Hit Control T question mark. Yeah. Right. Like there it is. Very cool. Yeah. I have to do a show on my uh, weekly Dev Tips podcast on that one. I don't think I yeah. have yet, but it would probably yeah. be a good one. Yeah. How is that going? The Dev Tips. 
Uh, it's going all right. I get a you know like probably three thousand downloads uh, when I do a nice. show, and it's it's not quite weekly. I think it's been a couple of weeks since I've I've posted another uh, episode, but uh, you know once I once I get in the mood, I do a few of them. Well, and, ba- and back in the before times, we every so often we bump into you at a conference, and you'd be racking them out, right? Like <laughs> yeah, you'd line up a bunch of folks, and and that. Yeah, NDC London. That was the first time oh, I did okay. that. So I recorded like eight tips there, and it was great. And I, and I got the idea from you guys, obviously, because you guys do yeah, that at every sure. show you go to. But um, you know, I was set for a few months uh, just from for what I recorded at that show. So that was yeah. awesome. But I haven't been to any conferences since really? Uh, really? January Why? because of What's COVID. Up with that? <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Well, and he, and you're you're sequestered in Ohio. All is well for you there. Yep. Yep. We're we're staying home. Um, we're, we're fortunate that we can do what we do, yep. you know, remotely. And as long as we have electricity and internet, we're, we're in pretty yeah, good shape. Our, our job gets a whole lot less interesting when the electrons stop flowing. Yeah, certainly does. So what's uh, next for this? Is this, is it done? Uh, are there new things that you want to add to it? You mentioned a couple actually. Um, it's, yeah, it's mostly done. I mean, it works fine as is. I'd like to see more people using mm-hmm. it and getting more feedback on it. Um, I would love to see an analyzer. I, I've once tried to write an analyzer for something else a year or two ago, and I, I, it got really hard, and I didn't know what I was doing, so it, I, you know, never got it completed. Um, so if somebody knows how to write analyzers, wanted to like contribute or, or at least help me out with where to start, you know, that would yeah. be great. Because um, basically, all I want is some analyzer that looks at this thing and says, "Oh, this is a class that inherits from this particular class. It should only have a public method that is overriding mm. this handle method." That's it. That's all I want. And if it, if it has more public methods than that, it should, you know, throw a warning or whatever. Um, and so I'd like to see something like that that I could ship with the NuGet package so that when people did, you know, use it the wrong way, um, it would warn them, right, right. In, in the compiler. Uh, but but other than that, there's there's not a whole lot else I think I need right now. And if people find stuff, they can always add issues uh, in the repository. The, That's the beauty beautiful. Of open source. Absolutely. All right, Steve, well, I don't know where or when we will see each other again, but I'm sure it won't be too long from now, I'm hoping anyway. So thanks. Thank you. It's always great to be on the show. Appreciate it. You bet. All right, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time.